All right, uh, if you have a Bible, Book of Romans. We, we're going to finish it someday, maybe, a couple of years from now. I got an email from someone who uh, listens to us online, and they said, uh, hey, they asked me a question. I think, I don't remember what chapter, Romans 10, Romans 11. And uh, they said, they said, when, uh, they said uh, how did the email read? When you get there in four years... Uh, you can uh, address the issue then, or you can address it now. And I'm like, well, just wait four years. No, okay. No, no I, well, so, yeah. And uh, just continue to pray for all, uh, everything we post online. I don't know what happened Saturday. Uh, we had 6,423 downloads on Saturday. Um, so, it's always great. I mean, it's it's one of those, it's always been a frustrating thing. It's great that we post things online and, you know, and through the Spreaker app and all the other different apps. And everyone loves us. Um, just no one loves us around here. But okay. Okay. You know, people around the world loves us, but that's okay. But that's fine. You're here. That's all that matters. All right. Everybody ready? Every, that's, that's all that matters. And it's because of you guys that's the reason we have the internet uh, ministry anyway, because y'all support it. So. We're in chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, still. We've been there a long time. All right, Romans chapter 3. All right, here's what we're trying to do. In Romans chapter 3, we have, basically we're going from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and we have two concepts that we're looking at, right? We're looking at first, just justification explained. Everybody remember that? And then, starting in chapter 4, we're going to have justification illustrated. First, justification explained, then justification illustrated. Now, we are spending a lot of time discussing this doctrine for a number of reasons. First, in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, remember we were confronted with a very difficult subject. Right? The Bible seems to be very clear that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. A basic concept since the Protestant Reformation that has been articulated over and over and over and over. All right, and everyone says amen to that. But when we got to Romans chapter 2, verse 6, we were confronted with a very difficult subject. That, wait a minute, we're going to be judged according to our deeds. And we're like, wait a minute, how do we reconcile this? So we spent, I don't know, seems like six months, trying to work through every possible solution that's been offered up in church history. And we ultimately worked out a solution that, yes, we're going to be judged according to works, but the reason we'll be judged according to works is because, in the doctrine of justification, we are taught that what is imputed to our account, Christ's righteousness, his works. Well, sometimes we say that he just came, he came to die. He didn't just come to die. He came to fulfill the law, right? And that fulfilling the law is his what? We have passive and active obedience. Passive and active obedience, which is accredited to our account. So when God, when we, we read that we're going to be judged according to our works, the works that's been accredited to our account, the works of Christ and keeping the law. Does that make sense? That was the solution. But it brings up that we really need to understand what doctrine. We need to understand the doctrine of justification. And while we're in the middle of studying this, we've had this big controversy within the Christian world with uh, uh, Pastor John Piper, very famous pastor, basically coming up with a new concept for the doctrine of justification. And we addressed that last week, and that raises lots of questions. So we really need to ensure that we have the doctrine of justification 
100% down. And remember, the doctrine of justification is the very doctrine that divides Catholicism from the Protestant world. It's this doctrine of justification. Luther said the doctrine of justification is the doctrine which the church stands or falls. We have to have this down completely. Now remember, in Catholicism, what happens? They believe in an initial justification by grace, but what happens in that initial justification? We are infused, remember that's the key word, infused with righteousness that we then cooperate with and hopefully we cooperate with it enough to die in a state of grace that we can possibly go to purgatory to then have all of our sins purged so that we can ultimately enter into heaven. That's an infused righteousness. The very key in the Protestant Reformation is they rejected infused righteousness. And justification, what, is in, what happens? Not an infused righteousness and an imputed righteousness. Now, that righteousness does not change you. It's a foreign righteousness that's accredited to your account. So how does God, what, what does God see when he looks at you? Not your righteousness, but an alien righteousness that's been provided to you. And whose righteousness is that? Christ's righteousness, all right? This is a very, you've got to have this, this distinction down. That's why there, it's like, it's not just like, well, Catholicism is one form and we're, no, that we're talking a theological difference that is, you know, stand on one side of an ocean versus another side of the ocean. There's an ocean of theological difference between those two concepts. So what we have to do is figure out exactly what the New Testament teaches in regards to this doctrine. And we're in a section where we're going to have justification, what? Explained. So we're going to, this is what we're going to do. Last week, we're going to, we were looking at three words. We only looked at, we only got one, right? We're going to go back to those three words, but before we look at these three Greek words, what we're going to do is we're going to read through this section in Romans 3, and I'm going to just give you points to write down Points about justification, all right? We're going to do this maybe over and over as we work through this section because I want you to have this down so well that if you read a book that offers a different view of justification, you can detect it a mile away, okay? Remember that sermon by Piper where he offered a new concept. I, 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 po- I posted that sermon and, and gave that to all of you guys. And guess what happened? You, I, I, I was worried that maybe you wouldn't catch it at first because it's so manipulative in how he does it. You, the only way to be able to protect you from error is you've got to know the truth, right? You've got to know the truth so that you're not misled. So let's jump right in. Everybody ready? Okay. Ro- Romans chapter 3. Let's start in verse 19, just so that we remind ourselves. And Romans 3, if you go back, a good portion of Romans chapter 3 is designed to teach us one very important thing, especially starting in verse 9 and following. That is to establish human depravity. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. How do we become sinners? It's our nature. We do not become sinners by sinning. We sin because of what we are. We are sinners by nature, and that impacts every area of our life. Our mind, our words, our will impacts everything. Now, starting in verse 19, we read, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Everyone's guilty. 
Right? Everyone is guilty. We're guilty in a number of ways. We won't go into all, a whole theological discussion about that, but just understand we're all guilty. Starting in verse 20, all the way down to verse 31, he's going to begin to explain the doctrine of justification. If we are guilty, what do we need to know? How can I be made just or right before a holy God? How can I accomplish this? Let's see what Romans 3, 20-31 establishes. First, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, what's the first thing you want to write down about justification? We are not justified by keeping the law. We are not justified by keeping the law. Right? Why are we not justified by keeping the law? Well, number one, we can never keep the law perfectly. Right? That's the problem. Number two, even if we're to somehow try to keep the law perfectly, we're still guilty because of our nature, and we're still guilty in whom? In Adam. Right? So we're going to be guilty no, no matter what we do. We can't. We cannot. So what is the law designed to do according to this verse? It gives us the knowledge of sin. The law is there to show you your sin. It's to sh- reveal it to you. Right? Remember the law reveals your sin and it's to drive you to the only solution which is Christ. You are not justified by what you do. You're not justified by what you can do, will do, should do. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Now, some people don't like to hear that because they're like, well, wait, you're saying you can do anything you want. That's not what we're saying. We're saying justification occurs without the work of the law. That's the first thing you need to have done. Anything that articulates something different is not the New Testament. All right, Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, you don't need to write this down as far as justification. We talked about this. This now talks about a righteousness that is manifested apart from law. Whoa, where where does this righteousness come from? This righteousness shows up apart from law. Without it. And we believe this is ultimately the righteousness of whom? Of Christ that is made manifest, okay? And that's the righteousness we need, okay? So just keep that in mind. All right, verse 21, or verse uh, 22, I should say. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified Freely by His grace. Here's the second thing you want to write down about justification. Number one, we're not justified according to the works of the law. Secondly, we are justified freely by grace. We are justified freely by grace. That's good news, is it not? Freely. Freely for, for our perspective. We don't have to do anything. We don't do it by keeping the law. It's free, and it's by grace. Grace. Now, what's a a very simple understanding of grace? The unmerited favor of God. We don't merit it. God, God is giving to us something we do not deserve, something that we cannot earn. That is grace. We are justified freely by grace. Everybody got that? Right? So what's the first thing we learn about justification? Not by the deeds of the law. Number two, 
freely by grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right? We are justified freely by grace, and we are justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is connected to this idea of redemption. Just have these things written down, right? Everybody got that? Justified freely by grace, justified through through Christ, the redemption that is in Christ. Make sure you have the word redemption because I think that's very important here, right? And we'll, we'll be talking about that word in a minute, all right? But justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So far, so good? Next, verse 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. I want you to, I want to make sure you add this. Justification is possible because of propitiation. Justification is possible because of propitiation. We're going to, we're going to study the Greek word here in just a minute. We're going to, we're going to get deep into that word. But that's a good question, all right? Everybody got that? Justification is possible because of propitiation. So far, so good. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be uh, just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. Right? Next thing, we are justified by belief, or we're justified because of belief. Justification and belief are connected. You can put justified by faith or you can put justified by belief. Same concept. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded uh, by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jew only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, we establish the law. All right? The next thing to say about justification, justification is for the Jew and the Gentile. Jew and Gentile. How are we, how are we justified? By faith. All right? Those are some of the key elements. Let's go through those again. What was number one? We're justified apart. From the law. Number two? Freely by grace. Number three? We are justified through the redemption that is in Christ. Next? Justification is possible because of propitiation. Right? So far, so good. And then next? We're justified by uh, faith or by belief in Christ. And then the last one? Justification is for... Jew and the Gentile. Jew and Gentile. Right? For both. How are we justified? By faith. Because Christ. All those things. Make sure you have those things. I know we just went through those quickly, but I at least want you to have... We're going to go back through those over and over and over again until you can just state those from memory. Okay? That's when you hear something about justification that goes against one of these. You can go, wait a minute. In the book of Romans chapter 3, it's articulated pretty clear. Agreed? And what is this section trying to do? 
Explain justification. Explain it. It's going to illustrate it in chapter 4, but right now it's explaining it. Now, there are three words that we took from this section, and we started working on these three words last week. All right? Everybody remember the first word. Okay, the first word was redemption. Romans 3.24. Everybody see that? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right? Everybody remember the Greek word? Apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. Okay. Uh, if, we were, if you were to spell it out in a transliteration, it would be A-P-O-L-Y-T-R-O-S-I-S. Apolutrosis is how it's pronounced. Apolutrosis. Right? And what did we learn about this Greek word, apolutrosis? What does it mean? Okay, releasing, a releasing affected by payment of ransom, redemption, deliverance, liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. So a ransom is paid and someone is delivered. All right, everybody remember this very important Greek word? How many times is this Greek word used in the New Testament? Or, yes, in the New Testament? Ten times, nine times it's translated redemption, and one time it's translated deliverance. And remember, we read all ten places where it occurs. Everybody agreed? Okay, so we got a pretty good idea of a ransom, right? So, let's go back to that verse. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. My redemption is connected to a redemption that, occur- that occurred, right? A redemption. A ransom was paid, Right? I was redeemed. And this comes through Christ. Christ paid a ransom so that I could be redeemed. I could be purchased back. Yes? And this is critical to my justification. Now, that's simple and straightforward. However, Christianity has a long history of doing some bizarre things with this concept. All right, there is a view within Christianity known as the ransom theory of atonement. The ransom theory of atonement, and this was made very popular by C.S. Lewis in the Narnia series. All right, we reject the ransom theory, okay, but we're going to talk about it and we're going to read some things about this to make sure we understand redemption and ransom and we understand this concept as, clear, as biblically as we can. Does that make sense? All right? So I have a lot of notes here. We're going to work through these and let's see what we can do. Go to Psalm chapter 49. Everybody ready? I know we kind of worked on this word last week and I know you were probably thinking we're going to get done with all the rest of the words today, but you probably were crazy if you thought that. Okay. All right. Psalm 49. All right. Now, just look at this. It's kind of a very interesting passage. Psalm chapter 49. Um, Look at verse 7. I'm going to read from the King James. None of them can, can by any means... Redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Everybody see that? 
Right? That's, that's a pretty bad situation. We can't do what? We can't redeem our brother, or, nor can we give God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. All right? So this kind of gives uh, the idea that as, as human beings, we've fallen into a very bad situation. We've fallen into a bondage that we can't ransom ourselves out of, and no one can ransom for us. No one can redeem us. No one can ransom us out of this particular situation. So what do we need? We need someone who can ultimately do this, who can ransom us. Yes? All right? Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. All right, everybody there? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. All right? There is where our hope is, right? We are sinners. We are in bondage. The only way we can be justified is there a redemption has to take place. A ransom has to be paid to redeem us, to purchase us, to bring us back. Now, here becomes the very important theological question. Everybody ready? If a ransom is paid, there's an obvious question, right? If someone is in bondage, if someone is held captive, and a ransom demand, you want to know who you pay the ransom to. Now, if we've been redeemed, and that involves a ransom payment, which is what the word deals with, right? We saw that, correct? Then, what's the obvious question theologically? Who is the ransom paid to? Now, you would think there would be an easy answer within the world of Christianity, but when you get into theology, sometimes things are more complicated than we thought. So, let me explain how at least one view tries to handle this. In C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we see where Aslan makes the payment of his life for Edmund's liberation and response to the white witch's demands. It is a powerful scene and not without biblical resonance. But if we draw the line too directly, we may make a theological mistake of some importance. Because in the story, Aslan is clearly Christ in the story and the witch is clearly to stand in for our accuser and would be considered to be whom? Satan. But while Satan is often called the God of this world, he is still subservient to the sovereign Lord of all, of all the universe. So we have to be careful how we speak of ransom, lest we tend to basically come up with a concept that the ransom was paid to whom? To Satan. And that is the ransom theory. Christ paid the ransom to Satan to buy us back. That is a popular theory in a lot of forms of Christianity. We should say, "Uh, time out. We should say time out. And I would point us to a very important passage of Scripture. All right? Go to 1 Timothy. 
Go to 1 Timothy. All right? This is a very important passage of Scripture because this, I think, will begin, begin to fix the problem. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Everyone there? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God. Everybody see that? And one mediator between whom? God and men. And who is the man? Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, I know this is going to go against some some concepts of modern Christianity. It's not very controversial in historical Christianity. But let me make this very clear. When Christ came to die to give a ransom to save us, what is he saving us from? Now, people will say, the devil, save us from sin, save us from hell. And there is truth in all of that. But ultimately, who does Christ have to save us from? God the Father. Who is angry with us? God the Father. Who is going to pronounce judgment and condemn us? God the Father. So Christ becomes a mediator between which two parties? Us and God the Father. Who does he have to satisfy? God. Not Satan. God the Father is who he has to satisfy. So who does he have to satisfy? He has to pay a ransom to satisfy us, to purchase us, to save us, to bring us back to God. Right? It's this, think of it this way. And I, maybe this is a, a good illustration. Remember in the Old Testament, Israel committed a lot, well, they commit sin all the time, right? They committed a really bad sin, and God gets really upset with them, and he sends what into the camp to bite them and kill them? Snakes. Oh boy, that's not a good situation, right? Okay, and so what would be the best solution? To get as far away from snakes as humanly possible, right? But that's not what it happens. Moses is told to take a serpent and put it upon a pole. And what do they have to look to? To the very thing that is condemning them. Okay. So, guess what? Who do we need to make things right with? God. Who's the one who condemns us? God. So we, we need someone to go the in-between. Now this in-between has to be able to satisfy God's demands and pay the price. Now that's why Christ has to be truly God. He's got to be truly man because he's going to redeem man. That's why he takes upon human flesh. But he has to be truly God. Remember the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, right? We won't get into that. So Jesus takes upon human flesh... Truly God, truly man, hypostatic union, right? We can get into all, all of these issues. And then he's going to be the in-between. The ransom has to be paid to God because God is the one making the demands. God is the one who's upset. God is the one who has to be satisfied. Right? Not, we, we, I know that, that, that scene in, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, I know it's a powerful scene. You know, he goes in, he makes the deal, and then, you know, there's the lion, and he's being beaten, and he's tortured, and everyone cries in the movie, and everyone, it's all dramatic. But, but you're like, I, sometimes you want to stand up and go, stop! Theology, people! Theology, 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 theology. Now, to be fair, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis doesn't really try to offer an explanation and how the ransom is paid. He tries to argue... 
you know, we don't really need to figure that out. Um, but in, at least in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. Now, there's much debate here, to be fair. Some claim that Lewis says it was never supposed to be an, anal- an allegorical reading and that Christians have read it that way and they were wrong. Others argue that Lewis claimed there was supposed to be an allegory. I don't know. I can't call him up and ask. Here's what I know. Don't get your theology from a movie or from an allegory, okay? Get, or from a book, right? Get it from the Bible, all right? Our issue is God, yes? Now, we have sin. We have Satan. Not, not denying that. But God is the one he has to save us from. Christ saves us from God, because God is going to be the one to condemn us. And he's, he's the go-between between man and God. I know that, that like, I, that's not the way we usually state it, but theologically, that's the correct way. He's the mediator between God and man. Everybody got that? That's very, very important to understand. Now, this is going to lead us to the very important next word. Go to Romans 3.25. Because we got a ransom. We got a price that has to be paid, right? Okay, He's got to satisfy God. Now, this is where the next word comes in. Romans 3.25. And what word do you see in Romans 3.25? Propitiation. Oh, yes. Here we go. All right. Propitiation. The Greek word is helostadion. Helostadion. Um, if, if you want to write out how it would look, uh, transliteration, it would be spelled H-I-L-A-S- T-E-R-I-O-N. H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. Helostadion. All right? I know it doesn't look like that, but that's how it's pronounced. Helostadion. All right? Now, this is an important word. All right? The word propitiation is a key, I mean, you've got to be an expert in this word because it's so key to the doctrine of justification. All right? Now, how is it used? Well, I'm going to give you some of the way it's used in the Bible. It relates to an appeasing or expiating, having placating or expiating force, a means of appeasing or expiating a, prop, a, a, a propitiation, same idea, right? So it's placating, it's uh, appeasing, it's to appease, it's to placate. All right? Kind of get us there, kind of, right? That may not help you completely, but let's go to a couple more. It's used of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled with the blood on the annual day of atonement. This rite signified that the life of the people, the loss of which they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim, and that God, by this ceremony, was appeased and their sins uh, were basically taken care of. All right? So, if you remember the idea... On the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. The people obviously have sinned, yes? And what's inside the Ark? The broken, the broken tab- tablets of the law, right? Because we are all guilty of breaking God's law. So when God looks down and he sees the broken law that we have broken, 
then what's the natural response? Anger, wrath, and judgment. But on top of this was the mercy seat. Now, this mercy seat, this covering, carries the idea of this word propitiation, right? Because what happens? The priest, they would sacrifice the animal and take the blood inside and place that blood on the mercy seat. So now, think of the, the, the picture. God looks down. Now he doesn't see the broken law. He sees the blood of the sacrificial victim. And that blood appeases, propitiates God's wrath. It satisfies God's wrath. It satisfies God's demands. That's the idea of propitiation. To satisfy. To appease. Now that's who we need to be appeased, right? God needs to be appeased. So the word propitiation, that it really deals, I mean, that's a beautiful picture, is it not? We're all guilty. And what do I want to see? When God looks at me, what do I want to see? Do I want him to see the broken law? I don't want him to see the broken law. Now, is the broken law a reality? Yes. Well, I need something. I need a propitiation. I need someone to appease God's demand. I can't appease it. I can't. I can go back and try to put the law, to, the tablets back together. I can go, okay, I can get the, get the tablets all back together. Okay, woo. They look really good. They look really good. And five seconds later, they're broken again because I'm a sinner. So what do I need? I need, so Jesus is the sacrifice. His blood, he becomes my propitiation. He becomes my mercy seat. He's the thing that appeases God on my behalf. All right? Does that, that gives you a beautiful picture of, of uh, justification, does it, does it not? Okay, um, it's the, this word uh, propitiation, the Greek word here, is used two times in the King James, right? It's used two, uh, two ways, propitiation and mercy seat. It's literally used for the mercy seat, right? Isn't that amazing, all right? Look at uh, Romans 3.25, that's the first place it's used. When God hath set forth to be a propitiation, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Everybody see that in Romans 3? I'm in 1 Timothy, so it makes no sense, okay? Romans 3, okay? Whom God hath set forth, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. And who, whom did he set forth? Christ. Look at verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Note, redemption, Right? That's the ransom. And then what is it? Christ is the one who is the propitiation through faith in his blood. He is the one who appeases God. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5 for the other place the Greek word is used. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. There's the Greek word. Right for propitiation, of which we cannot, cannot now speak particularly. And then they go on into great things. It's, the very word is right there, a propitiation. So how does this work? You're going to be justified. How are you going to be justified? Someone's got to pay a ransom price. Who's going to pay the ransom price? Christ. Who's going to pay it to? God. Why? God's the one who's upset with us. God's the one making the demands. 
Well, how does he do this? Because Christ is the propitiation. In other words, he does what? Appeases, satisfies God's demands. God demands what? What does sin require? Death. What's the wages of sin? Death. What does God demand? Judgment. He has to because he's holy. He can't just judge on a curve, right? And like, oh, well, I love you. He may love, but he, his love is a holy love. Which attribute is thrice repeated? Holy, holy, holy. Not love, 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 or mercy, 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 but holy, holy, holy. He is holy, and guess what? He has to demand something. Now, guess what? Who can propitiate for God? Who can satisfy God? It's got to be someone who is sinless, someone who is perfect, someone is who is holy. Though what God demands, only God can provide. And who provides it? Jesus Christ. He is your propitiation. He satisfies and, and placates God's demands on your behalf. He is your mercy seat. He is your mercy seat. And it's His blood on the mercy seat. Man, that's, that's, some, that's some good news. That's... And that, that really gives you a, a great uh, understanding. All right, we have one more word to look at. Okay, go back to Romans 3. Oh, we're going to run out of time. One more Greek word. Okay. See it in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The next word is justified. All right? Justified. All right? The Greek word, dikaio. Right? Dikaio. I'll spell it out for you. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. Dikaio is how it's pronounced. All right. Now, what is the meaning of dikaio? It's got three. To render righteous, or such he ought to be. To show, exhibit, one to be righteous, such as he is and wished himself to be considered. To declare, pronounce, one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. Alright? So it's got a couple of meanings there, right? It's got a couple of meanings. The main idea, there's two main ideas, is it's to render righteous, or declare or pronounce one to be just, as he ought to be. Now there is an idea in the word justified, where you can try to justify yourself by your actions, and try to demonstrate but what we're taking is the idea that God justifies us. He de- in justification, he declares us to be righteous. That is the key element that we have to take away. Now, the word is used a lot in the New Testament. Uh, the Greek word is used how many times? I think I have it written down here. Forty times. All right? Thirty-seven times justify, one time be freed, uh, one time be righteous, and one time justifier. All right, now I've got all the scriptures where 
it's used, and we could go through all of them, but clearly at 1210, we don't have the ability to do so, all 40. I would strongly recommend that you look at all of them at some point, but we won't so, do so right now. But let's put this together so we have a clear picture. All right, everyone ready? Okay, here's the thing. We're all sinners. Amen? We're all guilty before God. There's nothing I can do to satisfy God. There's nothing I can do to placate, pacify Appease God in any way, shape, or form. His demands are too great. I lack the ability to do anything. That's the dilemma we are in. Right? That's why Paul starts in Romans 3 with showing how bad we are, how bad off we are. We can't do anything. So God has to step in. God has to find a way to justify us. Now, he can't just say, hey, you're all good, because that would go against his justice and go against his holiness. So he has to find a way to fix the problem. What's the way to fix the problem? Well, he is going to have to provide what he demands. He demands a ransom. Christ provides that ransom by doing what? Shedding his blood and dying. In the shedding of his blood and dying, he does what? He serves as a propitiation. He appeases, satisfies God's holy demand. And in the ransom process and the propitiation process, he ultimately is able to justify us or to declare us to be righteous. Now, there's one other word that's not used here in Romans 3, but it's a very important theological word. Anybody know the word? Very important in the doctrine of justification. Starts with an I. Imputed or imputation, right? What does imputation or imputed means? Does anybody remember? To what? Accredited to your account. Imputed. To impute something to your account. Remember, this is very important theology. This is how it worked, okay? Adam's sin is imputed to whom? Us. And we don't like that. We don't think it's fair. But he stood as the head. His sin is imputed to us. We are guilty in Adam. In Adam, all sin. Remember the Bible says this? In Adam, we all sin. All right? That's no good. But then another imputation takes place. On the cross, my sin, my guilt is imputed to to Christ. It's imputed to him. And then guess what happens on the cross? God then pours out his wrath on that sin that's imputed to his son. And in, in, the, in that process, what happens? Christ becomes the propitiation and pays the ransom price. Now that's good, right? Because we're like, okay, now I'm, I'm in good, all my sin's been taken care of. I'm good to go. But that only gets me back to where? That gets me back to a clean slate. I need something more than a clean slate. Because what does God demand? perfect righteousness. He demands holiness. So how, how am I going to... If I just get back to, to a clean slate, I'm going to mess it up in five seconds. Right? So what do I need? I need now another form of imputation. Adam's sin to me, my sin to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Therefore, God can declare us just. He can declare us just. Why can he declare us to be just? 
because the ransom has been paid, Christ is the propitiation, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to my account. So guess what he sees when he looks at me? He sees the propitiation, he sees the ransom, and he sees perfect righteousness. That's being saved freely by grace, apart from work. Because God is the one who provides it all in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of imputation is critical to the doctrine of justification. All right? You get that. That is, I want to make sure you understand. So how does it work? God's demands. I'm a sinner. God provides. How does he provide? He provides ransom in Christ. He provides propitiation. And he provides the righteousness which he demands because Christ's righteousness is accredited to your account. And that is the doctrine of justification as quickly as I could do so. Does that make sense? All right, let's stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, what a powerful truth. I pray that everyone in this room understands this truth. I know that we've talked about this in the past, but hopefully we now have it down better than we've had it before. And I pray that any questions we have, we continue to ask those questions so that we understand the doctrine of justification to the degree that not only we can explain it to others, we can be protected from false doctrine that would seek to have us tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And I pray that we can avoid that by now having this truth of justification down maybe better than we've ever had it down before. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,